That leads us to a third set of episodes on Temple Mount that relate to these two. One could say that the worst accusations made against Jesus were made while he was attempting to teach on Temple Mount in the officialdom, if you will. As a matter of fact, they accuse him of everything from being a Samaritan, which was a snarl word in those days, to being possessed of a devil, and certainly of being himself a sinner. Again and again, Jesus points out that they are involved in self-contradiction. Again and again, they acknowledge certain things, and then he points out that if they are serious about that, they would come to the conclusion that he is who he is. So, for example, they say, we be of Abraham. And Jesus replies, if you were, you would do the works of Abraham. They say, we follow Moses. He replies, one is in your midst who is a greater than Moses. And Moses spoke of me. They say, we are uh, privileged. We keep the law. And he says, if you really kept the law, you would recognize the lawgiver. They say, we accept John. He replies, you yourselves say John is a prophet. Then you ought to receive his testimony. We take oaths. We are under covenant, they say. And they speak of the scriptures in this behalf. And that's the context of the statement. Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. The operative word in that verse is think. You think that your redemption is in the Torah alone. But if you would really search the Torah, you would find me. But in each case, they are not aware. In each case, there is a kind of blindness. So one can detect, both on the Temple Mount and elsewhere in Jesus' ministry, that there were really three different groups to whom he addressed himself, and in each case, in a different way. In the first instance, he was in the presence of enemies, people not interested in the truth, people who were tradition-bound, and people who, even if they had messianic expectations, could not recognize the kind of Messiah he was. In such cases, he often answered their questions, including their baiting questions, with questions. For example, they came to him and said, Master, whence cometh your authority? Quite aware that if he said, I am representing the government here, I am uh, one of those who follows Rome, I'm a zealot, they could say, well, no one in that community recognizes you. On the other hand, if he said, I am a Jewish priest, or I am a rabbi with proper authority, they could say, then how is it that these very persons who are the Pharisees and the chief hold the chief seats in the synagogue are against you? Did Jesus answer either? No. He said, the baptism of John 
was it of God or of man? And they withdraw and counsel. If we say it was of God, he can say, then why were you not baptized of John? If we say it was of men, there are people standing here who are followers of John who will oppose us. They come back. We do not answer thee, they say. And Jesus replies, neither do I answer you. There was a second group, however, who came to hear Jesus out of mixed motives, some curious, some hearsay, some expecting a handout, some hopeful of a repetition of a miracle. But in such instances, since they were not intent upon learning his teachings and abiding them, he taught them most frequently in parables. And much can be said about his brilliance in the use of parables, often thought to be light, easy to understand, pleasant, and related to things profoundly familiar to anyone who lived in that time and place. All that is true, but it is only part of the truth, because parables have depths beyond depths. Parables always teach, but also suggest much more than they immediately teach. Every parable which begins the kingdom of God is like is talking about the kingdom of God and the likeness can be taken in superficial ways or with understanding. That means that parables are in a way both to conceal and to reveal that those who have eyes to see will see and those who don't will not. But in every instance, one who heard the parable would then have something to remember, to discuss, to ponder, and perhaps would be led to a return and further understanding. Let's just take one example. Still in or near the area of the temple in Jerusalem, there are trees growing, many kinds, most prominently olive trees, but there are also mustard trees trees. One can take the pod of a mustard tree and uh, press it before his fingers into his palm. And when he's done so, the seeds will be in the middle of the palm. And their size is about the same as if he had taken a pepper shaker and now had pepper in his hand. Tiny, diminutive seeds. Not the smallest, but among the smallest in the world. What does one do with one's seeds? He, he plants them. Jesus said, If ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye can say unto yonder mountain, Remove, and it will remove. As a child, I thought, the lesson is, if you have just that little itsy bits of faith, you can move mountains. That is not the message. The message is that if you have growing faith, it will have such power, growing, dynamic, increasing faith. And in this instance, the tiny mustard seed, if it is planted in good soil by a pure stream, will grow to a tree, not simply a flower or a bush, a tree large enough that the birds can come and build their nests and dwell or abide in it. What is the meaning of the birds? 
and the nests, we have a glimpse from modern revelation. He was really saying that the living tree that is the person that is to bring forth much precious fruits can, once it grows to its full measure, have communion with the angels. He was saying that it is the privilege of the saints to have communion with the general assembly, so-called, Paul's phrase, and with the church of the firstborn. It is saying that we live in the presence of heavenly beings. That's the deeper meaning of the elementary parable of mustard seed. Is there more? I can bear witness there is always more. Well, Jesus taught in parables, and some came and heard him gladly, and some came and were put off. But ultimately, those who came with even the slightest openness were blessed and benefited. A third group came to Jesus. These were, of course, his disciples who had begun to understand, who had begun to love him, and who at times paid the price in facing severe opposition. These are the ones to whom he spoke when he said, Unto you it is given to understand the parables of the kingdom, but unto the world it is not given. These are the ones that he occasionally charged not to speak elsewhere of what he had either done or taught. These are the ones whom he counseled not to cast their pearls, which ultimately were his pearls, before those unworthy. And modern revelation makes this clear to us by the promise. If thou shalt ask, thou shalt receive revelation upon revelation, knowledge upon knowledge, that thou mayest know the mysteries and peaceable things, that which bringeth joy, that which bringeth life eternal. So much for the three healings that occurred and the teaching mode associated with the Temple Mount. I want now to pull together our Temple Mount visit with Jesus' attitude toward that place and some glimpses of its eventual destiny. Remember that on three different occasions he speaks of the temple but changes the possessive pronoun. He first spoke of it when he drove out the money changers as my father's house, saying it is written my father's house should be a house of prayer. Ye have made it a den of thieves. The second time he refers to my house and the third to your house. The last statement in connection with the prophecy, a painful one, that that temple would be destroyed and that there would not be one stone left upon another. There are those who believe that Jesus totally replaced the temple, that the meaning of his ministry is that these ancient forms and patterns were to be totally replaced by and through him, and even use the incident described as the tearing of the veil recorded by three of the gospel writers 
as the proof that the temple was not only defunct, but permanently rejected by Jesus. And yet, I repeat that he gave his most earnest and profound teachings often in the temple area and even on one occasion in the treasury where he bore witness of the Father and said that the Father were witness of him. Well, it is the case historically that that temple was in fact dismantled. It was set to the torch and being made of the kind of substance that yields to great heat, parts of it disintegrated. Anything wooden or combustible burned. And then the Romans dragged the larger stones away and even plowed the ground so that there would be no inclination on the part of the Jews to return or even to think of rebuilding it. Yet, we know that Jesus was committed to the ordinances, powers, and blessings of the temple. Our own Matthew 24, I say our own because the prophet Joseph retranslated it and printed it separately as part of our pearl of great price. Our own Matthew 24 adds a couple of very crucial verses. It has to do with another parable, a parable familiar to all of the so-called wise and foolish virgins. Here again, a teaching that is prophetic, but which reviews in the presence of his hearers something very familiar. We need to know only this much, that it was the pattern, anciently, for the bridegroom to stay during the day of this feast away from the bride and then just at the approach of sundown to gather together his well-wishers and close friends and start a procession toward the place of the feast. The bride in the meantime prepared with clothing and other things for this beautiful symbolic reunion. As the groom came along, others joined the group. People on the flat-roofed houses and so on shouted and rejoiced and congratulated. And in the case of those who were invited to the feast, it was important to bring along olive lamps, the main source of light in the ancient world. This meant they had to have three things. They had to have a lamp which would also have a wick that they could trim. They had to have oil in it, and they needed also a carrier of oil because the typical size of an olive lamp in that period was such that one filling of it would last at most four hours. To go through an entire night, which was the typical procedure for the wedding feast, would take at least one extra filling. Five virgins were prepared, five were not. And the parable ends with those who were not being turned away from the feast when they attempt to borrow from the others. Now, all this points to the meaning of the temple. For we are taught that it is a house of light, 
And we are taught that those who enter it are entering into sacred precincts and that the pure in heart, and only they, will in due time be privileged to have rich communion with the Spirit and even to behold the living God. Jesus, in the Matthew 24 uh, that we have, adds two sentences pertaining to the late or last days. Having described the difficulty, having described the terrible afflictions preparatory to his second coming, he says even that the elect, some of them, will be deceived. But then says, but they that have taken the Holy Spirit for their guide shall not be deceived. That sentence is added. They that have taken the Holy Spirit for their guide. Another version of it in section 45 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Well, they are the wise ones. And they are the ones who will understand both that there need to be temples built, rebuilt, and dedicated, but also that the welcoming of the bridal feast is ultimately the welcoming of the Son of God to his own house. As you look at the present Temple Mount and see built upon what is called the ancient Dome of the Rock, you see a marvelous Moslem shrine. Those who have studied Josephus and other sources for descriptions of the ancient temple conclude that the size and the height of the ancient temple was different. And for one thing, if you add a dome to the top of the present temple, that is the present sanctuary of Islam, it would then be as high as was the Holy of Holies during the time of Jesus. It is interesting that when Jesus left the Last Supper, departed through the gate which most scholars think was south and east, into the area of the Kidron, which was a kind of city dump, a place of refuse, a place of foul odors, where they burned the garbage, and up the brook, which was not a sparkling, fresh-flowing brook, but really a place, again, of refuse. He passed two ancient tombs and then went to the Garden of Gethsemane. If the Passover that year was, as all Passovers are, in connection with a full moon, and if there were no clouds that night, and rain is rare at that season. Then, as he knelt in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus would have been in the very shadow of the temple, a temple which he had taught had been abused and would be destroyed and left unto them desolate. Said the prophet Joseph only a year before his own death, Jerusalem must be rebuilt and Judah return must return and the temple water come out from under the temple and the waters of the Dead Sea be healed. It will take some time to build the walls and the temple, etc. And all this must be done before the Son of Man will make his appearance.
But modern revelation assures us that as he was once welcomed with Hosanna into the holy city, he will be again welcomed by the Hosanna shout into his own temple. For President Lorenzo Snow taught that this shout to the full strength of our capacity of rejoicing is that privilege we will have, those who are faithful, at his second coming. I bear witness that he graced and dignified the Temple Mount by his presence, by his teachings, by his healings, and by his promises of light and truth. And I bear witness that there will one day be new and glorified temples even more glorious than the first. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.